the people that we're really putting forwards are people like you and I, normal people who are just contributing significantly to the community through repair. So it's not just a small group of people that are heroes. Everyone can be a repair hero. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In October's episode of the Restart Project podcast, we get even more political as I talk to Chloe Mikolajai from our very own Restart team about her work as a campaigner for the European Right to Repair. This month, the campaign is launching Heroes of Repair, which aims to give repair a more human face, showcasing video interviews with some of the heroes of the repair movement. In addition to my interview with Chloe, we'll also hear from a few of those heroes themselves with a sneak preview of some of the content that will be featured in those upcoming videos. My name is Chloe. I am Belgian. I am currently based in Brussels and I work at the Restart Project as a campaigner for the Right to Repair campaign, which is a European campaign that has 35 members in 15 European countries. And so I coordinate the campaign's activities, the advocacy work that we do, the relationship with members and the communication. And what is the aim of the Heroes of Repair campaign? So with the campaign, we have supporters that we try to interact with as much as possible, whether it's through emails or petitions. And what we've noticed in the year and couple of months that we've been live now is that a lot of people see repair and right to repair as a very technical issue. It affects a lot of people's lives, but people don't necessarily see it as a very human-centric issue, more um, technical. And so with this campaign, we really wanted to put human faces on repair, show that repair is something that a lot of people do professionally, but also as volunteers, and that it's an activity that a lot of people support across different European countries. So that's really what we wanted to put forward, a human face for repair. And the idea also wasn't to say someone is a hero for doing something absolutely incredible. The people that we're really putting forwards are just people like you and I, normal people who are just contributing significantly to the community through repair. Once we release these videos, we strongly encourage anyone who is contributing to repair in their community to also post videos of themselves. So it's not just a small group of people that are heroes. Everyone can be a repair hero. This is what we're trying to also say in this campaign. Right. We could all be repair heroes. That's a that's a really positive message. And I think you're right as well. Like by making everyday people into heroes, that is kind of pushing back against this kind of cultural feeling that we have that we should make celebrities and successful rich people into our heroes. My name is Paul Adamo. I'm 35. Uh, from Ireland and I've been repairing almost as long as I've been breaking things. So I got involved in the repair movement through community building and being involved in community spaces where people had broken things and other people had skills so people coming together and just showing other people how to repair things and then learning together on how to fix things and make them work again. Repair is important for lots of different reasons. Um, Reducing the environmental impact of 
society is an important one. So extending the lifespan of things, but also if you want to look at it from a community way of looking at things, it's, it's something that people can do together. Um, so it's communities coming together, sharing skills, sharing space and learning how to repair things while also reducing the environmental impact. So one of the biggest challenges to repairing things is often that it's designed in a way where it's not supposed to be repaired. I can remember fixing a computer console that I had when I was a kid and to get into it, to repair it, what was broken, you actually had to break the casing open. So the design of things and how it's designed is, is one of the biggest challenges to repairing things nowadays. Repair would be a lot easier if things were designed to be repaired. If you could open them, repair them and put them back together without any problems, that would be the biggest change. So the right to repair to me means designing things so that people and communities can be empowered to repair and extend the lifespan of items themselves. So sometimes you feel angry when you're repairing something, especially, say, if it's a bike that's been rusted and left out in the rain and seized together. Um, that can be a bit frustrating. Um, but then when you actually get something working again, then there's a sense of satisfaction and an enjoyment of it. It's hard to summarise repair in one word, but satisfaction will be a good one. So why is it important to run this as an international campaign? Uh, I guess the first thing is that we are a European campaign. One of our main goal, of course, is to influence policies and especially EU policies, because this is where we see a lot of opportunities. But we are more than just a campaign that happens in Brussels. We are a European campaign. And when I say European, it's important because it doesn't only mean EU countries. We have members in the UK, we have members in um, Norway as well. So we really wanted to show that this is a movement and it's not just something that is being discussed in Brussels. There are things happening across Europe and across the world, actually. Um, and not just politically, there are people active in almost every European countries and at least every European countries where we have members. So this is why it was really important to us to ask our members to nominate people in their country so that we could showcase that in a small village in Spain or in uh, Austria's capital, there are people who are contributing to repair. And it's not just something that needs to happen at political level. It can just literally happen also at local level, or regional level or national level. Great. I mean, it's a really important reminder for everyone in the UK. Yeah. You know, you can leave the EU, but you're still a part of Europe and you're still a part of the world and you still have an international reason to care about repair. Exactly. You know? And uh, what differences do you see between the repair movements from these different countries? There are definitely differences. Um, if I take Germany, for instance, in Germany, the repair movement is already super organized. You know, there's a roundtable for repair that gathers community repair groups, professional repairers, scientists, academics. So it's, it's really organized. In other countries where we have members, and I'm thinking of Greece, for instance, repair is not at all discussed, whether it's at political level or even in the country's culture. So our member is 
almost the only organization that talks about repair and organizes activities around repair. So there are lots, lots of differences in different European countries. But what we are trying to do also with the campaign is to kind of bridge those gaps and provide inspiration for our members that are located in different countries. Because even if there's nothing that is currently being discussed about right to repair in their country, maybe they can find it inspirational to see that in Austria there has been tax breaks implemented for repair or in France there's a repairability index coming up and then we try to provide them with the tools not only the information but also the tools to do this in their own country or just start a conversation around repair. Right it's kind of a dual thing where they can learn from the things that have happened in other countries but at the same time it's got to be specific to that country that specific campaign because every country has different circumstances right exactly and it depends who's in who's in the government also and and you know what sensibility to repair the current government has Hello, my name is Sepp Eisenregel. I'm the founder, owner and manager of the Repair Service Centre, Roots. For the last 22 years, Roots has been the biggest independent repair centre for electronics in Vienna. We repair 9,000 things a year and are, in a way, cannibalising ourselves with a weekly repair cafe because we want to help those people for whom it would be cheaper to buy a new product than to pay for our repair services. This way, we foster repair in many ways. For me, our customers are members of the lobbying group for long-living and repair-friendly products. Why is it so important that gadgets are being repaired instead of replaced? We have no choice but to ensure, with the support of EU regulatory policy, that in the future we do not find junk in electronic stores, but rather durable, repairable and reusable products. Our repair work is increasingly being complicated by poorer and poorer product design. Many still follow an old linear economic system, which is called take, make, dispose. Using the product doesn't really play a role anymore because the devices are so short-lived. We support the circular economy, which has been a guideline for us since 2015, set by the EU Commission. If I had to summarize repair in one word, the word would be climate protection. It seems that much of the debate around the right to repair is about policy experts and community activists. What about the repair businesses that are working 24-7 on repair? Can those businesses be heroes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We actually have some some of the heroes of repair that we have in the videos. There are 
repairs. So Sepp, for instance, that we just mentioned, he runs the biggest repair center service in Austria. It's funny because you mentioned community activists. They also recently set up a repair cafe. <laughs> and he is saying in his interview that the repair cafe works within the, the center of the repair service. But of course, they can definitely be hero. And we are trying to involve them as much as possible in our campaign because they are an essential part of right to repair and the repair movement. In some countries, as Germany, as I was saying earlier, there are organizations that gather professional repairs and community repair activists. So it might be easier in certain countries to involve them, whereas in others, there's no networks of professional repairs. And I'm thinking of Belgium, where I live. It's often very small repair shop, one-man repair shop, and they don't necessarily have time because it's super time-consuming to be you know, an independent repair owner, <laughs> let's, let's face it. So it's not always easy to take the time and actually do the advocacy work, for instance, or get involved in a campaign or at policy level. So this is something that we're working on and we're hoping to be able to involve many more repair businesses in the future. We actually have some of them who are endorsers of the campaign, so they support what we're doing. But definitely in the future, we want to be able to engage many more of them and, and yeah, be able to collaborate with them. Because just to give you an example, um, sometimes in, in Brussels, There are a lot of policy discussions about very technical issues. And it's not always the case that we have data that comes from professional repairers. So people who repair for a living who are able to say, yes, indeed, this is where the problem occurs most of the time, or this is the spare part that causes the most problems. So this is also something we hope to be able to work on, is to bring this data from the ground back to policymakers so that they can take informed decisions. Right. And what are the key priorities of the European Right to Repair campaign? So we're active both at European and national level. So at the European level, we have three main priorities that are kind of guiding our advocacy work. The first one is, we call it good design. And essentially, we want products that are designed to be repairable. But there are processes which are called eco-design processes, And they're usually targeting a specific product. And the idea is that these processes help these products become more durable and repairable, essentially. And at the moment, there are eco-design processes, notably for smartphones and laptops. And it's quite historic because smartphones had never been regulated before. So good design really is one of our main priority. The second is that we want to make repair accessible and affordable so that it can truly become the norm. And because we all know that even if you have a product that is super repairable, if it costs a fortune of just or just getting it repaired because there's no access to spare parts or um, the repair is too complicated, it's going to cost a lot of money to the consumers and consumers may not want to get their stuff repaired. So we need repair to be also not only possible, but accessible and affordable. And the third pillar at EU level is informed consumers. We want consumers to be able to make the most repairable choice at the point of purchase. And at the moment, they don't have this information. So what we're pushing for is an EU-wide repairability index. So a little bit like the, you know, the energy label that are on some products. We want something quite similar, but for repairability. And with criteria that include not only how repairable a product is, so is it easy to open, is it easy to repair, but also the access to spare parts, for instance. So all these criteria that would make a repairability index that would actually inform consumers at the point of purchase of whether 
of products is more repairable than another one. And what is the biggest barrier or frustration in the work that you're doing? At EU level in general, it's the lack of transparency and the presence of industry lobbies. So of course, it's very bureaucratic. A lot of processes take a lot of time. That's true. So you have to be really patient, first of all. But also it's the fact that a lot of these meetings aren't open or they're not live streamed. So they're not accessible to people who could be interested, like you and I, for instance. And so it kind of creates this culture of stuff happening behind closed doors, you know. And this is how some policies can be completely weakened at the very last moment by industry lobbies. And more generally, not just about repair, but industry lobbies are present so much in Brussels and they are present at every step of every policy process. Sometimes it can be very unfair because these industries have a lot of money to spend on lobbying. They have people that are working full-time influencing policymakers and the fights at the end of the day is not always fair between NGOs or civil society and the industry. But yeah, it's it's about, you know, trying to move past that, learning how to work in the system, but also, I think, be vocal about what's not going right with the system. And hopefully this will change one day. Ich bin Janine vom Schiefix Tutorials Collective. I'm Janine from the Shifix Tutorials Collective. I'm 33 years old and live in Berlin. Three years ago, I founded the Shifix Tutorial YouTube channel along with others. This is an open platform where people who are not cisgender men can upload explanatory videos and tutorials. That fast nur biologische Männer auf YouTube. To me, it is surprising and constantly disappointing that almost only cisgender men explain things like machines and repairs on YouTube. I often run courses for people who are not cisgender men, and there is always a special moment when people use a certain machine for the first time and feel a lot of joy. The biggest challenge in repairing for me is the so-called mansplaining. This means when men explain things to you without being asked, or take the tool out of your hand, or just want to teach you. Yet another challenge in repairing is that often repair instructions are not available, that repair parts are not available, that some special tool is needed which is not available, or that certain machines are not available. In order to make repairing easier, we need spaces, machines and places where such repairs can take place. These can be open repair workshops or other places. Then there is also a need for more repair instructions, better spare parts and machines, special tools that can be shared in shared rooms. 
Das Recht auf Reparatur bedeutet für mich, dass gute und langlebige These products and things should last for a long time. They should be repairable, there should be repair instructions for them, and they should have an incredibly long lifetime. For me, the right to repair also means that there are open places where people can repair, where there are machines available, where motivated, diverse people offer courses for all people who want to repair something. What are the key moments in the Right to Repair campaign's work that have happened this year? This year was a big year for Right to Repair in Europe, actually. There was a big opportunity at EU level because, you know, the EU published its Green Deal. And a part of the Green Deal strategy is the Circular Economy Action Plan. And we knew it was going to be published early March. And what we wanted is that the EU committed to... Right to repair, universal right to repair, because this is what we're asking, but also would commit to regulating smartphones specifically, because of course there's more than smartphones that need to be repairable, but we knew that this was a key iconic product. And if there was a commitment to regulate smartphones, then it would perhaps bring other products after that. So we did a, a big campaign at the beginning of the year. We launched a petition. We did quite a lot of advocacy work and We were successful in the sense that in the Circular Economy Action Plan, the European Commission committed to right to repair, to consumers' right to repair, that's how they called it, and to regulate smartphones. And so the process that I was mentioning earlier, the eco-design process to make smartphones and laptops more repairable, also began this year. And it's going to last for probably <laughs> quite a few months, but at least it was started. So this was quite a big year for us in terms of what happened at EU level. And I was, I was telling you, it's kind of historic because smartphones have never been regulated before. So this is a this is a pretty big win, I have to say. We're quite proud of it. Congratulations on that win. It's great. And it's interesting to hear that even in this big success, like the way it's phrased is the consumer's right to repair rather than the citizen's right to repair or something like that. But I mean, it's great to hear that you're having successes. <laughs> Were there any other key moments that you wanted to touch on? I mean, it's not really a key policy moments, but it's just nice to see that more and more organizations are interested in joining the campaign and to see that there's this kind of movement that is growing, kind of creating this network of people and organizations that want to make a change. It's, it is for me not a key moment, but it's something really cool and really nice that has been happening throughout the year. Oh, maybe a key moment as well, but not necessarily a positive one. But it, I think it's important to talk about it. It's um, Henrik Husby, who is a Norwegian independent repairer, lost his fight against Apple in the oh, Norwegian hey. Supreme Court. Yes, um, this June after a three year legal battle. And so this was also quite important because the legal reasoning was super complicated, but it kind of shows that the laws are still made in a way that benefits big companies and not the environment or one man repair shop. And it was really sad for Henry Cosby, of course, but it was also an important message to get across, you know, that things like this are still happening and we need to push for the right to repair so that hopefully we can avoid more people getting in the same situation as Husby did. 
Right. I mean, Henrik has been on this podcast to talk about the legal battles that he was fighting. It's a real shame to hear that. How do you see the right to repair campaign going forward into the next year and beyond? Um, I hope that, I mean, there's already a lot of stuff that are going to happen next year in, and especially the repairability index that's going to be implemented in France as of January 2021. So that essentially will be something similar to the energy label. We don't know exactly which form it will take yet, but that will be applied to five categories of products as of January 2021 for both products in stores, but also online. And this is really, really big. So hopefully we'll see 2021 as a year where other countries uh, in Europe will start uh, a similar process, maybe not implement it already because, it, of course, it takes quite quite a while. But uh, if we could see other countries get interested in that and, we'll, of course, we'll push as much as we can to ensure that this is the case and we'll keep pushing at EU level. It's, it's almost a marathon. I think what is really important for us is to follow these processes and make sure to make some noise if we see something that we don't like. We hope to have even more members and just generally keep pushing to make right to repair a a reality across Europe. Right. And campaigning during these unprecedented times, you know, has that given you an advantage as well as a disadvantage in terms of getting people's attention? I feel that a lot of people have realised that repair and just slowing down in general, but also that repair is essential, which is actually the theme of next International Repair Day, because in the context of the pandemic, and especially the lockdown, you know, you needed these communication devices, you needed computers, you needed your phone to keep working, to keep in touch with other people, especially the people you loved. It was it was just really, really important. And in some countries, repair wasn't considered as an essential activity. So the repair businesses were closed. A lot of people found themselves with electronics that didn't work anymore. And a lot of them realized how essential repair is, especially in times of pandemic, where it might not be as easy, you know, to get a new smartphone shipped from China in a matter of a few days or a few weeks. So I think more and more people realize the importance of repair. And hopefully more and more people will be interested in, in campaigning for the right to repair. My name is Keris Jones. I'm 39 and a half. I live in Wales in the UK and I've been part of the repair movement for two and a half years. I am co-founder of an organisation called Repair Cafe Wales that exists to help communities open and run repair cafe events. I got involved in this because in 2017 I saw a social media post from somebody in my local area that was looking for some help to start a repair cafe. I had no idea what a repair cafe was, so I promptly Googled it and realised that it's totally aligned to what I believe in and and my values. Um, So we're two and a half years into the project of Repair Cafe Wales, and we have 30 or so communities across Wales that are thriving repair cafes. Uh, I think repair is important on so many levels, first and foremost um, for waste reduction, uh, we're in a throwaway society and we, we really need to move away from that. Uh, Wales, where the country I live, has just declared a climate emergency. Um, we really need to work on shifting people's thoughts and behaviour when it comes to consumerism. So that's a big part of it for me. Um, additionally, I think I've noticed that at our repair cafes where we encourage people to sit 
with their fixers and learn how their item is being fixed. There's definitely a sense of the shift of um, responsibility for that item from the people that make the items to actually themselves and the people that own the items, which is which is huge. And we're also upskilling people at the same time. So uh, what needs to change for repair to become easier is... Um, Definitely manufacturers um, thinking about the design of their products. I think I know that watching um, our volunteer fixers at our repair cafes, I can see a a real sense of frustration when they can't help somebody who's coming with an item that should be repairable and and isn't. Right to repair means for me um, being able to fix more items for members of the public. And that will only happen through organisations, companies, governments, thinking about the way that products are designed and manufactured. And I would love to see our fixers not frustrated or annoyed because they can't fix an item. If I could summarise repair in one word, it would be vital. And how can people and organisations get involved with your campaign? Ooh, I like this one. Uh, (laughs) So if you are an organisation involved in repair or you know if right to repair is part of your core commitments then you can join as a member organization or as an endorser so essentially you're part of the campaign's activities you join the meetings you spread the word about right to repair on your channels and there's kind of different levels you know how much you can get involved so for that there's actually a page on the website join us you can just fill a form there and we'll be back in touch with you and then if you're an individual there's two things that you can do you can sign up to the newsletter where we share you know what's happening with right to repair in europe but we also share opportunities to get involved sometimes so you know if there's an action or if there's a campaign or if there's um, something tangible that they can support Um, but also if you're able to of course you can donate to the campaign and help us keep going with this work also you know if you're a repair shop and you don't necessarily have time to become an active member which is completely understandable you can just reach out to us the last thing that i like to ask people is is there a question that i should have asked you or something that you'd like to say or to emphasize that hasn't come up so far in our conversation okay well i guess it's it's not really a question but i'm i'm gonna use this opportunity to just add one last thing it's just that some people that are interested in repair don't necessarily see the link between repair and right to repair. We've seen this while talking to community volunteers or, or, you know, other supporters that don't necessarily make the link. There is a very strong link. And the thing is, right to repair, for some people, might seem like a distant issue, something that's only happening at policy level. But in fact, it literally affects the life of everyone that owns a laptop or a smartphone or any type of electronics so it's much closer to home that we might think but you can get involved by supporting this campaign because at the end of the day what we are trying to achieve which is implement a universal right to repair for everyone so not just repairers but also community groups and and citizens is something that will affect probably 100% of the people that will listen to this podcast because you'll you'll need a device to listen to the podcast from just go on the website or reach out to us or or just join the newsletter. I think we're at a time where we can achieve real change and I hope we can achieve real change. But we need also to show policymakers that we have the support from citizens because this is pretty much the only thing they care about. You know, it's it's seeing that people care about an issue. And we've seen this in the past with other campaigns. The reason why there was 
a legislation on plastics that was adopted so quickly at EU level, it's because there was this huge outcry for plastic. The more support we can get from people, the better chances we have to show policymakers that this is an essential issue and we need to move fast on it. Repair, like many other things in life, possibly everything in life, is both personal and political. This year, in particular, we've seen how deeply barriers to repair are felt and how important the repair community is to all of us, particularly to those of us who are a part of it. But the successful work of campaigns like Right to Repair shine a little bit of light into what can be achieved when we persevere and make our voices heard. As Clary pointed out, it is up to everyone, individuals, businesses and activists alike, to keep fighting for repair. If you want to get involved, then visit repair.eu to learn more. And look out for the videos of the repair heroes that you've heard in today's episode. Let's celebrate and lift up those repair heroes. Let's also remember that the repair heroes we need are all of us. And when we come together and collectively push for change, that's the kind of heroism that we and our planet need. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the restartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who, as well as doing the usual research and planning for this episode, also edited and put together the clips of the Repair Heroes. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.